Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the six-hour documentary Hemingway by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick has had its initial airing on PBS and is now available for streaming. We'll visit the Hemingway House in Key West. They bought this home in 1931 for $8,000 in back taxes. And still today, it's the single largest residential piece of property on this island. We'll discuss environmental history and science. We need to recognize a balance to preserve ecosystems and species with human populations. Nature, in one form or another, will always win. And New Deal public works projects in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Sometimes I look at old pictures smile at how happy we were how easy it was to be hungry it wasn't for fame or for money it was for love now my copper hair is gray as the stones on the clay in the city where magic was. The Mary Chapin Carpenter song, Mrs. Hemingway, is about Ernest Hemingway's first wife, Hadley Richardson. Hemingway divorced her in 1927 while the couple was living in Paris. Writer John Dos Passos suggested to Hemingway that he may enjoy Key West, Florida, and in March 1928, Hemingway visited the island for the first time. Dave Gonzalez is events director at the Hemingway House and Museum. He came here for two reasons, really. One was to fish and enjoy himself, and the other was to take delivery of a 1928 Model A Ford Roadster. Now, his plan was to jump in that car and drive it back to um, Oak Park, Illinois, the Chicago area, and write a little novel or novella about the road trip. Well, he arrived here in March, and the car was not here. So it was delayed um, from production, and he ended up spending um, three additional weeks here he hadn't planned on, And at that time, he then fell in love with Key West, the lifestyle, the fishing, of course. The car eventually arrived. He eventually went upon his way. But uh, he kept coming back to Key West over the next two years, mostly during the spring months. He'd invite his friends uh, from the lost generation. Uh, John Dos Passos came down, Waldo Pierce, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And they come down for fishing trips in the spring mostly. But Hemingway would spend four to six months out of the next two years here. When Hemingway's second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer, found the home that the couple would move into, it was boarded up and abandoned, but she could see its potential. The property was on the highest point in Key West, across the street from the island's lighthouse. They bought this home in 1931 for $8,000 in back taxes, and still today it's the single largest residential piece of property on this island. We're a full acre, very lush tropical gardens, 
the mansion was originally built in 1851 by Asa Tift, a wealthy uh, shipwreck and salvaging merchant. Ernest Hemingway lived in the home until 1939. He was very productive while in Key West. As early as his first visit in 1928, the writer put the finishing touches on his book, A Farewell to Arms. While living in the home that is now the Hemingway Museum, the author wrote the novel To Have and Have Not, the nonfiction book Green Hills of Africa, and short stories The Snows of Kilimanjaro and The Short Happy Life of Francis McComer. Dave Gonzalez. This was his first writing studio, the secondary building in the rear of the main mansion. Uh, prior to this time, he wrote on tabletops, bar countertops, kitchen tops, coffee tables, wherever he could find a smooth surface to write. They took what was the carriage house, and the upper floor was the hayloft, and converted that upper floor into his formal writing studio. Uh, Hemingway is very much a trendsetter. He's probably the developer of something we call home office and teleworking back in the 1930s. There were no roads connecting the last 35 miles of Key West to the mainland. So to visit Hemingway, you had to come by either boat or airplane. There was a ferry. Uh, and I kind of like that. If you understand a true writer, when they go into their writing mode, they go into an isolation period. And he certainly isolated himself from the mainland U.S. by positioning himself here in Key West, disconnected uh, and by, by roadways uh, from the mainland uh, United States. The Ernest Hemingway House and Museum property is famous for its population of polydactyl or six-toed cats. The cats at the museum today are living history in a sense, as they are direct descendants of Hemingway's own cats. There's a folklore legend about them, and you have to understand Hemingway. He was very much a storyteller as a boy that later grew up into a story writer as a man. And um, when he heard the folklore legend about the uh, six-toed cats, they were the preferred cats on the wooden clipper ships. Uh, ship's captains took them on board mainly because they thought that extra digit, the six toes, made them better mousers, would catch the rodents on the ships. But they also were believed to have mystical and magical powers. They were believed to give ship's captains calm seas, prevailing winds, and safe passages on their journeys. Therefore, they were the preferred cats on clipper ships. When Hemingway heard this folklore legend about the six-toed cats, and they were called gypsy cats as well, he thought, that's a great story. I'd like to have one of those cats. There's a gentleman, his name was Stanley Dexter. He was a ship's captain here uh, in Key West. And uh, Hemingway had docked his boat, the Pilar, down at the, the Key West Harbor where Dexter was working. And Dexter heard about Hemingway's interest in these six-toed cats and gave Hemingway the first six-toed cat. It was a white, totally white cat. And the, the mother of the cat was named uh, Snowball. So Hemingway's sons, Patrick and Gregory, uh, they named it Snowball Jr., even though it was a female. It retained a junior. Um, and that was the first polydactyl cat on the property, a six-toed cat. There was a picture of, pa of Gregory holding the white cat in our dining room, uh, standing alongside Patrick. And uh, as we say, that was the start of the six-toed cat clan that we have here. Hemingway, being a little bit of a humorist as well, he named all of his cats after famous people. So we still follow that same tradition today. Again, with the app, or if you visit our cat cemetery, you'll see names like uh, Cary Grant, Liz Taylor, uh, Gertrude Stein. Uh, again, the list just goes on and on. And Lionel Barrymore, Benny Goodman. About 50 cats lived on the property while Hemingway lived there, and the same number is maintained at the museum today. People from around the world visit the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum, and tours are available in nine languages.
In addition to the six-toed cats, visitors get to see Hemingway family photographs, original furniture, and artifacts, including the writer's 1932 Royal Portable Typewriter. Also on the property is the swimming pool installed by the second Mrs. Hemingway. It was the largest residential pool in all South Florida when first installed. It's 24 feet wide and 60 feet long. It's about 10 feet deep at the far end, four foot up on the shallow end. Built in 1937, while Hemingway was off covering the Spanish Civil War, Pauline decides we need a pool. She removed his boxing ring. He was very unhappy about that. Located that over to the Blue Heaven restaurant we know today and put the pool in. Problem was, in 1937, we weren't going to get fresh running water in Key West until 1944. So it was a saltwater pool. Now, Hemingway was very upset about the pool for, well, two reasons. One, he found out the price tag, $20,000 for the pool. They only paid $8,000 for the entire estate. He took a penny from his pocket and told Pauline, you know, if you're going to spend our money that recklessly, you might as well take my last cent right now. He threw the penny at her feet, stormed off out of the yard. She picked up the penny, embedded it into the wet cement, where it still remains today. It's a 1934D copper penny, last pocket. It was in Ernest Hemingway. Now, he left her for Martha Gellhorn, and Pauline stayed here until 1951 uh, with the boys by herself. But she'd still would entertain her Hollywood friends and stars and celebrities and writers and poets. And she'd call all the girls around to poolside at cocktail hour and say, you know, ladies, of all four Hemingway wives, I am the only one that can truly say, I took him for his last cent, and there it is. And it's still there, embedded at the pool. In addition to being appreciated for his concise and direct writing style, Hemingway was known for his fondness for drinking to excess. His favorite bar, Sloppy Joe's, has the writer's face as their logo. The large urinal from the original Sloppy Joe's bar is in the yard at the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum, and of course, there's a story behind it. Yeah, and Hemingway, you know, regardless of his indulgence, he was a very disciplined writer. He'd write till about noon every day, and then he had something else strictly on his agenda, either to go fishing or down to Sloppy Joe's, depending on the weather. Now, Sloppy Joe Russell was his, one of his very best friends, and the original Sloppy Joe's is what we know today as Captain Tony's Saloon. Well, the landlord, during the Great Depression in the 1930s, um, tried to raise Joe Russell's rent a dollar a week. A lot of money back then, and it is a matter of um, Joe Russell just didn't want to pay it. So Joe Russell decided to move his bar across the street to the Sloppy Joe's that we know today, on the corner of Duval and Green Street. But the way he did it, he had a, a very swift exit out of the old bar, he offered all of his customers a drink if they would help move the bar across the street. So if you picked up a table, a chair, a case of booze, um, and take it over to the bar across the street, they'd give you a drink for that. And so, after you're finished with that drink, you go back to the old bar and pick up another couple of chairs or a table and a case of booze and bring it over and get another drink. Well, that went on for just a very minimum amount of hours, and the bar was pretty much stripped down. It was lock, stock, and barrel. It was now across the street slinging drinks. But the customers were having to pay for the drinks. So they went back to the old bar to find out what else they could bring over. And there was nothing except for the fixtures in the bathrooms. So they started to rip the toilets and the sinks and the urinals off the walls. And they brought them over. And Sloppy Joe said, wait, 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 don't bring those in. We already have restroom facilities here. Just drop them on the sidewalk. They did. He honored the drink deal and gave them their drinks. But we're done moving. 
Well, Hemingway came walking up that afternoon, and as he approached the new Sloppy Joe's, he saw this urinal sitting out on the sidewalk at the entrance. Joe came out, told him about his new bar and how well he had pulled off the move, and Ernest said, you know, Joe, that urinal sitting there, I think I've put enough money down that drain that I should own it. And Sloppy Joe said, Ernest, what do you want with a urinal? Surely you've got two bathrooms at your own home. He said, yeah, but you know what? I've got 50 cats. There are about 12 water bowls all over the place. Every time I turn a corner, I kick one over. He goes, if I had that heavyweight, large water fixture, I could fill that with water for my cats. And I could just have one bowl for all 50. And so Sloppy Joe said, tell you what, come on in, have a drink, and I'll help you take it home. Hemingway went in early that afternoon for that one drink, and they came out late that night. The two of them made their way back to this home, uh, looking for the lighthouse's guidance as to where the house was located. And they plopped the urinal in the backyard. Ernest filled it up with water, went upstairs, and went to bed. Miss Pauline woke up the next day, came out to her veranda to gaze at her $20,000 pool, saw the urinal sitting there next to her pool, woke up Ernest, said, hey, get that filthy, disgusting thing out of my backyard right now. He said, look, you move your pool, I'll move mine. Needless to say, the big one didn't go anywhere. Little one remains there today, and it is still today. The cat's water bowl with a Spanish olive jar on top, brought over, hand-carried by Sloppy Joe Russell and Ernest Hemingway. In 1939, Hemingway moved from Key West to Cuba, leaving his second wife and children behind. He received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954 following the publication of his novel, The Old Man and the Sea. The author committed suicide in 1961 at his home in Ketchum, Idaho. We spoke with Dave Gonzalez, events director at the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum in Key West. And oysters, Notre Dame's cloisters, time is This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Mark your calendar now for the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, May 20th through 22nd at myfloridahistory.org. Panel discussions on a variety of Florida history topics and a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King will be featured. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. 
Connie, in previous conversations, we've explored Florida's environmental history using literature and by focusing on a specific geographic feature of the state. We haven't really talked about the intersection of history and science in researching environmental history. No, we haven't. Historians are often teased about their choice of career by saying that they chose the discipline because they could not do math or science. The history subfields of the history of science and technology and environmental history and digital history should put that joke to rest. Many, if not most, history departments has at least one faculty member with a degree and work experience in the sciences. In my department at UCF, Dr. Amy Foster, whose specialty is the history of science and technology, has an engineering degree. I have a degree in microbiology with research experience in medical microbiology at the University of Tennessee Medical School and St. Jude Children's Hospital. Increasingly, our students are working on topics that bridge the humanities and science, including environmental history. I'm currently working and advising two students whose work bridges that gap. Florida Historical Society members met one of those students whose work was presented at last year's annual meeting and symposium. Andrew Kashuni completed an honors and a major undergraduate thesis on the 1918 influenza pandemic in the South that bridged the discipline of history and public health. As it turns out, most of the work on the pandemic in the South was written by physicians and medical scholars. In order to complete his work, he consulted public health and statistical research to understand the Southern response to the crisis. He completed his thesis just before the current pandemic manifested. And as others have noted, the parallels on the social effect of the pandemic are often disturbing. Another graduate student, Levi Watson, is working on a public history thesis project that focuses on mitigation plans for coastal Florida historic sites in anticipation of sea level rise. His work has necessitated a deep dive into the science of climate change and melding that with the public history theory of site management. In a number of areas of scholarly research, then, students must master the science in order to be able to write good history. Has the Florida Historical Quarterly published articles that demonstrate this intersection of science and history? Yes, we have. I recently published an article that brought together public history in the form of oral history and biological science. It was an unusual format for the FHQ in that it did not follow the general expectations for a journal article. Instead, it consisted of a transcription of a conversation between two senior scholars, one a historian and the other a biologist, on some of the big picture questions about Florida's environmental history. The conversation occurred between Roger Chapman, a professor of history, and Thomas Chesnes, a professor of biology, both at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And what sort of big picture questions did they address in the article? From the outset of the conversation, the two focus on the biological diversity and cultural paradox that is Florida. Professor Chesnes notes that within a few miles, a traveler could move through marine, coastal, dune, tropical hardwood forests, estuaries, scrub pine lands, wetlands, and eventually pine flatwoods systems. What is more remarkable about this complex environmental journey is that within the same biome, the same climate and temperature range, the same rainfall frequency and other physical factors, there exist extremely different and diverse ecosystems. 
Florida has very little variation in topography. Its highest elevation is only 345 feet, but small changes in topography or microtopography have significant influences on the habitats it supports. In terms of the cultural paradox that is Florida, the conversation notes, as others have done, that Florida, as the most geographically southern state, is both culturally southern and not southern, a phenomenon that also factors into our understanding of Florida as a myth, a fantasy, and paradise. It leads to a big-picture question. Is the myth of the Florida paradise sustainable? The two scholars also look at both the impact of human activity in developing economic opportunities and in introducing exotic species of plants and animals to the Florida environment. This leads to another set of big questions. First, the natural environment is dynamic, even without human activity. So how should we inform our environmental thinking? And second, is the combating of Florida's invasive species a denial of the inevitable continuance of what has been called the Columbian Exchange. As the conversation concludes, it's worth quoting Professor Chesna's final observations. Among colleagues on the front lines of land conservation issues in South Florida, there is an adage that development always wins. And considering the unequal ability to marshal economic and political muscle, it is often a David versus Goliath affair. Over the long view, though, it is nature who wins. Changes such as those that witnessed the shifting extent of the Florida Peninsula occurred over eons. We are witness to changes that remind us where we stand in the landscape. We are humbled by tropical storms. King tides flood coastal city streets with increased regularity. Emerging novel pathogens can cripple societies and economies. He goes on. Save the earth is a common environmental slogan. The earth will be fine, as it has been for millions of years before us. Save the people may be a more appropriate slogan for what we are trying to save is the environment and natural mechanisms that make human life and society on this planet habitable. We need to recognize a balance to preserve ecosystems and species with human populations. Nature in one form or another, will always win. Great, Connie. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She has this look at New Deal public works projects in Florida. Dr. Robert Krause is an architectural historian and a disaster response specialist who works in Houston, Texas. Dr. Krause wrote an article in the summer 2018 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly Journal called New Deal Public Works in the Florida Panhandle, 1933-1940. He recently talked to me about President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal and how it transformed Florida through federal programs meant to employ Americans during the economic downturn of the Great Depression. New Deal public works, and really what we mean by that are any federally funded projects that uh, change both the human and uh, environmental space during the New Deal period. And, and they fall under, of course, the alphabet agencies, the blanket uh, of those. 
And really, it, you know, the duty of public works, and especially in places like Florida and in Mississippi, they usher in a period of tremendous economic, social, and political change. Transformation, really, of the natural environment and the human-built environment in the early 20th century. One of the most successful programs of the New Deal was the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, a federal worker relief program intended to employ young men to work on construction and conservation projects throughout the United States. The work done by the CCC in Florida between 1933 and 1942 established several state parks that are still enjoyed by visitors today. CCC workers built picnic facilities, buildings, fences, roads, and other infrastructure in order to make the parks accessible to the public. The establishment of the Florida State Park System is really driven by the CCC and uh, their efforts on the ground throughout the state. Um, I think the Florida State Parks were uh, most notably a new presence and visible presence in the Panhandle. So you have places like Florida Caverns being um, actually surveyed by CCC crews and uh, the first tourism in uh, Defuniac Springs. Also alongside the commercial aspects of this, the scientific piece, revolutionary kind of science that's emerging from this uh, on ecology and botany in places like Terea Pines State Park in Gadsden County. And uh, I think this speaks to the sort of uh, utilitarian appreciation that New Deal had for environmental facets in the natural environment. The New Deal also significantly impacted Florida through road and bridge construction projects. Inspired by the Good Roads movement of the 1890s, these construction projects predated the Interstate Highway Program, developed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 1950s, and led to the integration of car culture and increased tourism in the state. One example of the uh, use of public money to improve the infrastructure of the New Deal period in Florida was the Good Roads Program. What became the Gulf Coast Highway gained a, an impressive new bridge, the Gory Bridge opened to traffic in 1935, and that allowed Apalachicola to become connected with the rest of Florida. The uh, federal money in Calhoun County actually completed a major long-span steel bridge over the Apalachicola River that I believe is still in use. And it was one of those road and bridge construction projects in the Panhandle that fueled uh, growth and the development really of that, uh, the industrial military complex in the region those road building projects were really transformative. New Deal construction projects also impacted communities throughout Florida by building new schools, playgrounds, libraries, gymnasiums, and other recreational facilities. Dr. Kraus. Another way that you see this manifest is uh, in municipal and local construction projects. South of Ocala, uh, a lot of those municipal local construction projects were built on existing facilities, whereas in the Panhandle, particularly in counties that were majority African-American like Gadsden and Washington, you had a, a situation where there were no facilities to begin with. So schools were built, swing sets were built, uh, you know, recreational equipment, uh, and, and boat docks, marinas were transformed. I mean, so this had a very wide-ranging impact on the local economy, particularly in places that to us would appear much more isolated than they are even now. Many of the roads and bridges we traverse to get to Panama City or Apalachicola didn't exist then. And the New Deal infrastructure allows those things to happen. So to me, uh, the New Deal and, and these basically construction projects changed the face of Florida as markedly as anywhere else in the country. There are those very localized impacts you know, that remain today and, and the sort of broader patterns that do as well. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime on Facebook and online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.